Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers right to your door everything you need to create a home-cooked meal. Farm-fresh ingredients are perfectly portioned and come with an easy-to-follow recipe card, so you can create a delicious dinner in 40 minutes or less. Visit blueapron.com lexicon to get your first two meals free. And by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines, anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 78, titled, They Had a Good Year, wherein we discuss the expanding role of our third-person plural pronoun. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid, thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. You may remember, not long ago, we discussed on this show several words of the year as chosen by various lexicographical publishers, entities, friends of the show. Oxford University Press chose the emoji face with tears of joy, not exactly a word per se, but that was their choice. Merriam-Webster chose the suffix ism. That was based on, we learned, a surge in lookups in 2015 for a bunch of words with that ending. And finally, Dictionary.com chose the word identity. And we noted, I believe, on that show that there was a kind of pattern that all three choices, certainly taken together, were an acknowledgement that 2015 was a year, and I don't think it's too strong to say this, was a year that was a turning point for what we call sometimes identity politics. And that phrase, identity politics, I use it strictly matter-of-factly, but I have the impression sometimes that there are people who use it derisively, and I don't know if I'm mistaken in that impression. I was wondering if you had any I know 100% of the people on this side of the microphone think that, so... (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I have personally... A kind of ambivalence towards identity politics. I think it's human nature to cluster around like-mindedness. I think it is extremely unhealthy individually and for the society to be obsessive about it. It leads to many things, including uh, not only chauvinism, but unchecked emotion and intellectual sloppiness and gets a little hateful. So yeah, I think you detect correctly. Okay, but the phrase itself has not kind of entered the realm of pejorativeness, right? You mean like uh, political correctness? Correct. It, it has not quite gotten there, I don't think. So in any case, 2015 was a year in particular 
from Caitlyn Jenner to marriage equality to the television show Transparent, which I've never seen. It was a year in which both the law and the wider culture exhibited, I guess you'd say, a more humane, a more embracing approach to issues of sex and gender identity and sexual orientation, right? Not everyone we now know is on board with the male-female or masculine-feminine binary, as it's often called. Not everyone is happy with the sex slash gender that was assigned to them or assumed of them, I think is a better way to say it. By virtue of their X and Y chromosomes. Right, at birth. And I think in 2015, our language started to reflect that reality with a greater sensitivity, with greater empathy than ever before. Is that fair? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's fair. In fact, come to think of it, and I wish I had thought of it when we talked to these lexicographers, instead of identity, it would have been interesting had someone chosen spectrum or continuum, Hmm. because in the same way that we understand that, for example, autism is not just a diagnosis, but a spectrum, we've come to embrace the notion that sexuality, gender, identity also reside in a spectrum. And it's not a toggle switch. It's a rheostat. So after we taped that episode, the American Dialect Society, which is a a 125-year-old organization of scholars, it met for its annual conference and chose its own word of the year, which, lo and behold, was very much in keeping with this pattern of identity politics. They chose the singular they. Now, what's the singular they? For those who don't know, that means using the pronoun they, the third person plural pronoun they, as if it were a third person singular pronoun. In other words, as if it were a gender-neutral alternative to he or she, because we don't have a gender-neutral pronoun in English, right? You can't use it because you end up sounding like the serial killer from Silence of the Lambs, <laughs> if you remember that scene. Yes. It once, what, what did Ted Levine say? It puts the lotion in the basket, I think is the line. <laughs> so you're in a kind of pickle, grammatically, right? And many people solve that pickle. Can you, can you solve a pickle? Is that... We had that in, uh, in algebra, I believe. Solve for X, or if you wish, you may solve for pickle. Okay, many people unpickle the pickle by using they, right? So, for example, you might say to me, Mike, I can't record until later on today because I'm picking up my cousin at the airport. Now, I don't know if your cousin is a man or a woman, right? I don't care. It's not really pertinent. And I might say, okay, well, what time do they get in? That's what a lot of people do. Other people, some of whom are named Bob Garfield, do not like that as a solution. I don't know if you remember this, Bob, but we talked very briefly about the singular they a few years ago on this show, and here's what you had to say about unpickling the pickle. Uh, I sometimes say he or she. That gets awkward. I am most disinclined to use the solution they when referring to a singular he or she, because the screwing with the number in the sentence I just find too nettlesome. So, yeah, I perpetuate 
just centuries-old stereotypes and discrimination by using the default he, and I can't really come up with a better solution. There you are, on record, anti-singular they. How dare a plural pronoun have a singular antecedent was your implication. So your solution is to— I think you're putting— (laughs) I think you're putting outrage in my mouth. I think what I expressed was was lingering discomfort, not quite the level of uh, opprobrium that you're suggesting. Well, your solution is to consistently use the default or the generic he, as it's often called. And, you know, I can't imagine why anybody would have a problem with that. It's such an elegant solution. Yeah. you're Now you're making fun of me. You mean because it's so categorically sexist and defers to the dominant gender role of society and is just a a continuation of one of the most corrosive aspects of society going back to the recorded word. Is, Is that what you're getting at? You said it, not me. Okay. Listen, one has to leave open the possibility that one either grows or gets used to stuff. And one of the reasons I was sensitive to this is because it was you know, I am a man of a certain age, and when I was a kid, there were certain things drilled into me in school that persist to this day. And it's hard for me not at least to flinch when I hear certain vocabulary or grammar or constructions because they were, I was told that it was, you know, when I was eight, that to say they for a singular was like embracing the Antichrist. Okay, okay. Before we talk, Bob, about why 2015 was a pivotal year for they, and before we get to what your current thoughts are, maybe they've changed, it sounds like that's possible, I want to first talk about how we got here. Can I jump in with a question here? Sure. How did we get here? Okay, let's go back to the beginning, which in the case of the word they is around the year 1200 when we were in the period of what's called Early Middle English. At that time, English had a third-person singular male pronoun. Now, all of the pronouns had different forms and spellings, depending on where in the country you were, but this was essentially the same one we use today, he, H-E. It had, English did, a third-person singular female pronoun. Varieties included things like who or heo, And it also had a third-person plural pronoun. Again, variations on the theme of hi, H-I. Wait, instead of he, she, or they, it was he, who, hi? Simply put, yeah. Which sounds like a Cab Calloway chorus. (laughs) Yeah, right. They all look very similar. They sound similar. And in fact, many language scholars believe that who evolved into the pronunciation she as a way to make it more distinct, to disambiguate it, as they say, from he, H-E, right? That sh sound of she is relatively unmistakable. So what about hi? To disambiguate that, English speakers simply got rid of it and borrowed they from the Scandinavians, with whom many English speakers were in close contact, right? Now, this didn't happen overnight. There was no decree. They and hi were both used, depending on where you lived, for a couple hundred years, and they gradually won out. But let's step back and think about that for a moment. Pronouns are 
by definition, really, the most personal parts of a language. They describe literally you and me. Borrowing words from other languages is very common. All languages do it. Borrowing pronouns is not. Yeah, okay, I I guess. But uh, if your pronoun system is Heidi, 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 ho, (laughs) uh, it's no surprise to me that you might be you know, shopping around for some substitutes. (laughs) Yeah, it does make sense. And they had one right at their doorstep. Remember, this is the year 1200. It's at the tail end of the Viking Age. Many English people, depending on where in England they lived, were in close contact with people who spoke Scandinavian languages. And when cultures collide, when cultures come into contact, so do languages. And they change. It just so happens that most languages wouldn't really have the need or the desire to borrow pronouns. These are among the most used, the most intimate parts of the language, and you tend to stick with what you have. In this case, like he said, they were shopping around. So this is the year 1200, and this is when the word they begins its life in English, or at least this is when we have the earliest written evidence of it. It appears around that time in a book of homilies, a book of kind of sermons about specific parts of the Bible. Incidentally, a lot of these Old English and Early Middle English, in this case, manuscripts that have survived, miraculously survived, we don't know who wrote them, right? They're effectively anonymous. In this case, we do because he names himself in the preface of the book. He's a monk. His name is Orm, O-R-M, and he calls the book The Ormulum. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, Mike, that I was thinking, what a narcissistic freak. But <laughs> now I realize that my email address and Twitter handle are Bobosphere. <laughs> right. <So. laughs> You're basically like Orm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a very non-Viking way. Well, in case you're wondering, Orm is a Old Norse word. It's the same word as worm, which carried more of a kind of serpent or dragon connotation back then. And so Orm or Ormin, as he calls himself, means like dragon man. So at one point in the Ormulum, this dragon dude is explaining the gospel according to Luke, which if you've read your Bible, begins with the story of the Jewish priest Zachary and his wife Elizabeth, who couldn't get pregnant. So Orm writes, And so they, they meaning Zachary and Elizabeth, they led their lives until they were old and did not have, through their family, a child, no son, no daughter. Now, as it turns out, there would be some divine intervention Elizabeth would later get pregnant and have a son. He would be John the Baptist. And she, Elizabeth, was related to another woman, Mary, for whom divine intervention would also produce a son. Justin? <laughs> the famous Justin of the Bible, <laughs> who, who had a brother named Doug. I know, they were crazy. <laughs> they were inseparable, and with such hijinks they got into. <laughs> Do you ever sit down with an contemplative moment with the book of Doug. It's very inspiring and calming. All right. I I think this is a good place to take a break. 
Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron will deliver all the ingredients you need, fresh ingredients, to create a home-cooked meal, and they even provide step-by-step instructions. And all of the meals are designed to take 40 minutes or less to prepare. If you don't eat meat or poultry like me, they have fish and even vegetarian options. This week, you could get Tuscan Ribolita Soup with soft-boiled farm eggs and lacinato kale. Ribolita is a classic, hearty, brothy Italian soup with leafy vegetables and root vegetables and bread. Ribolita literally means reboiled because it was historically made from leftovers, and it is a wonderful winter meal. I love a soup meal. And all of the recipes are between 500 and 700 calories per portion. Delicious and good for you. Right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com lexicon. That's blueapron.com lexicon. Blue Apron a better way to cook. Okay, now before we talk about the singular they, Bob, let's talk about something else we do with they that gets people upset. And I'll give you an example. In Shakespeare's Richard II, in Act Two, Richard has gone off to fight the rebels in Ireland, I believe, and the Duke of York is left in charge of the government. York is old, he's weak, He's not really up to the task. And after he learns that his own son has now left to go join Richard, he sort of exclaims disgustedly, go all which way it will. The nobles, they are fled. The commons, commons meaning the common people, the commons, they are cold. And will I fear revolt? Mm -hmm. Now, it's been probably 40 years since I read Richard II. Weirdly, I have those the faint echoes of that speech in my head, but I don't understand why it's uh, problematic. Well, this is what some people call the unnecessary pronoun. The nobles, they are fled. Uh, instead of being understood, it's uh, superfluously added, either for emphasis or, in this case, iambic pentameter. Superfluous, well-chosen word. In fact, There was an Oxford University professor from the 1800s who, uh, in a book that he wrote about Shakespeare, called this construction the nobles they, the commons they. He called it quite superfluous and, quote, a characteristic peculiarity of the historical prose style of the 16th century. Now, this construction far predates the 16th century in Shakespeare. It goes back with they, it's also done with he and she, but it goes back specifically with they to at least the early 1300s, which is not long after they was first borrowed. And it's a pretty useful construction. Like you said, it can have some great rhetorical weight to it when you use it sparingly. Yeah, yeah, I got no beef with Shakespeare, as I often don't. Nevertheless, you'll find debates over this in online language forums, right? One commenter I found wrote, quote, clearly it is not correct grammatically as it is redundant, as if A, redundancy somehow precludes grammaticality, and B, as if we don't have the power to declare something grammatical. Hmm. Yeah. Whoever wrote that, is one of the category of language scolds who who speaks with authority 
as if there were immutable rules that one dare not breach much in the way that my elementary school teachers regarded the immutability of grammar. And, you know, these are people who really need to be slapped around at the earliest opportunity so that they can live their lives for the betterment of mankind instead of picking stupid fights and getting all exercised over something that that just doesn't fucking matter. Some writers and critics who prophesize with your pen And keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again And don't speak too soon, for the wheel's still in spin And there's no telling who that it's naming Was a loser, now will be later to win For the times they are a-changing Okay, so let's talk about the singular they. So the singular they also dates back to the 1300s and has been used by the greatest historical English language authors, including Chaucer and Shakespeare, with whom you apparently have no beef, and Jane Austen, who I think is one of the top three people ever to put pen to paper in the English language. Can I just express a little bit of surprise? Or maybe I'll just ask a rhetorical question. If the singular they was okay by Jane Austen and Chaucer, I wonder why in the world the normal school graduates like Miss Cooper and Miss Vaughn and the other Martinets who taught me English were so reactionary about it. Why was it such a sin against American grammar if its antecedents were the greatest writers the language has ever known? Well, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Despite use of the singular they in literature by all of these luminaries— the generic he really took hold in the 1800s and early 1900s because it was prescribed in book after book after book of English usage, all of which were written by men. And I'll just choose one as an example, The Elements of Style, which was written first by one man, Strunk, and later by another, E.B. White. They said that the generic he was, quote, a simple, practical convention. And in the third edition, which was published in 1979, E.B. White was still alive at that point, so he probably had a hand in this edition, the elements of style declared, quote, he has lost all suggestion of maleness in these circumstances. These circumstances meaning when used generically, right? Quote, the word was unquestionably biased to begin with, but after hundreds of years, it has become seemingly indispensable. It has no pejorative connotation. It is never incorrect. I'm so happy to hear this, Mike, because it kind of lets me off the hook, right? Because E.B. White is nobody's idea of a sexist bully. He, by his very discussion of the subject, shows that he's enlightened at least as to the sensitivity of the issue. And he adjudicates it in a way that may make people mad now, but it, he's thoughtful about it. And I'd like to say, I've come to change my view somewhat, but it's just nice to know that I don't have to pin my arguments on the prescriptions of some fascist. As I said, throughout the 1800s, 
grammarians, usage experts, they just could no longer abide the number issue that you alluded to in that piece of tape I played earlier, which you said you found nettlesome. That was the prevailing opinion of that time. And so for them, the generic he was the only real good solution. Now, speaking of that piece of tape of you that I played earlier, for that very same episode, I spoke with Ann Curzan. She's a linguist at the University of Michigan who has written about gender in English. And she told me back then that there is even a precedent for the singular they. Here's a clip from that conversation. It runs about a minute and a half. If you think about the history of you, you used to be the plural form, ye and you, and thee and thou used to be the singular form. And as thee and thou died, you took over both the singular and the plural function. This is a kind of heated, ongoing debate, whether or not they can be used in the singular. And it's one of those places where what we do in speech and what we're told we're allowed to do in formal writing have really diverged. So studies of speech show that we're using they as a singular in this situation most of the time. So we would say a teacher should know their students' names, one teacher there. But when we're writing, we're told use his or her or rewrite the sentence so that you get rid of the problem. So teachers should know their students' names. Mm. Or some people will alternate every other sentence or every other paragraph, a teacher he, a teacher she. I must admit I find this fairly confusing as people's genders are changing every paragraph. But I think it's only a question of time before we're allowed to use they in formal writing. And I already do. You're a rebel. I am a rebel. Um, But what I do is I footnote it the first time I use it, and I explain why I'm using singular they as a generic so people know that I've made a conscious decision there. Lest you seem ignorant. (laughs) Because I would hear about it if people thought I had not made a conscious decision. And I tell my students they can do the same thing. Well, I know I must be trying to come lightly on this, but I have to throw in with Anne here because if the choice is between something that gives you an inner flinch because the number doesn't agree and something that gives you an inner flinch because of inherent sexism, I'm going to vote against sexism. And I'm still going to flinch. I mean, I'll always have that inner flinch, especially, as Anne says, in formal writing because it it will always feel off to me. But in time, in succeeding generations, as we've learned, nobody's going to flinch. And those like me who were drilled in a certain way will die off and the language will adjust and and my kids will never even have this conversation. It's so beautiful to see you evolve, Bob. Don't worry. There's still plenty of Philistine left to work <laughs> on. Plenty. Okay. Let's take another short break here. Lexicon Valley is also brought to you this week by Texture. Texture is an app that you can download on your phone or tablet that gives you access to more than 150 magazines. You can read the full issue of any magazine available on Texture, including back issues. The way I use Texture most often is, for example, while waiting for an appointment at the doctor's or dentist's office. I'm never happy with the magazine selection that they provide for you, and it's the perfect amount of time to read an individual article or to find a new recipe. There are so many food magazines available on Texture. 
from Savour to Vegetarian Times to Clean Eating, which is one that I just discovered, to Food and Wine, a classic. If you like to cook, you will never have an excuse not to. And if you like reading magazines, you'll love Texture. Texture is offering Lexicon Valley listeners a free trial right now if you go to texture.com slash lexicon. Full access to more than 150 of the world's magazines, from back issues to the one currently on the newsstand. For a free trial, go to texture.com slash lexicon. Okay, so that piece of tape we heard from Ann Curzan was from a few years ago. Fast forward to 2015, and she starts to sound pretty prescient. She said she thought it was just a matter of time before we're, quote, allowed to use singular they in our writing. Well, in 2015, the Washington Post, the little local paper we have here in our nation's capital, the Post updated its style manual, and the longtime Post copy editor, Bill Walsh, wrote in the paper, quote, for many years I've been rooting for, but stopping short of employing, what is known as the singular they, as the only sensible solution to English's lack of a gender-neutral third-person singular personal pronoun. He once filled that role, but a male default hasn't been palatable for decades. Using she in a sort of linguistic affirmative action strikes me as patronizing. Alternating he and she is silly, as are he slash she, she with the S in parentheses, and attempts at made-up pronouns. The only thing standing in the way of they has been the appearance of incorrectness, the lack of acceptance among educated readers. What finally pushed me from acceptance to action on gender-neutral pronouns was the increasing visibility of gender-neutral people. Huh, that's interesting. So various changes in the society begin to affect one another. Now, there were probably members of the language Taliban, who I was alluding to earlier, who are going to maybe firebomb his house. But I think he well articulates the stakes and well explains his position. Yeah, and he says the increasing visibility of gender-neutral people. For example, earlier in 2015, the New York Times ran a piece called a university recognizes a third gender, neutral. So this piece was partly about official policy at the University of Vermont, and it was partly a profile of a student there named Rocco Gieselman. Gieselman was born female, remains happily anatomically female. However, the pronouns that typically go along with that never quite made sense. Now, Gieselman is quoted in the piece and says that as a high school student, quote, every time someone used she or her to refer to me, it made this little tick in my head. Kind of nails on a chalkboard is another way you can describe it. It just felt wrong. It was like, who are you talking about? I think you're burying the lead here, Mike. The, the story is there's somebody whose name is Rocco Gieselman. <laughs> Yes. Okay. So Gieselman was born with a traditional girl's name that is never mentioned in the piece. Rocco was a kind of adopted nickname that then became, I believe, legal. It was a legal name change. But Gieselman doesn't identify as male or female. 
and prefers instead the pronoun they. So the University of Vermont agreed to use that pronoun on Gieselman's class rosters and other official school papers. Also in 2015, and this might sound relatively trivial, but I think it's a good reflection of what's happening in real life, there was an eight-episode podcast created by our umbrella company, Panoply, and by GE Podcast Theater. It was called The Message. It was a science fiction radio drama about a team of people who were trying to decode a message that was from an alien species, an extraterrestrial society. Now, one of the team members... Hold it. Let me just jump in with some full disclosure. The message was promoted, I think, pretty heavily on this very podcast, That's I correct. guess, due yes. to our relationship with Panoply. So we do not have a complete arm's length relationship with this uh, advertiser. That is true. However, the pertinent point here is that one of the team members named Maud, M-O-D, told a reporter as part of the radio drama the following. Okay. Hello, Nikki. Hi. My name is Maud. Um, so my preferred pronouns are they and them. I'm sorry, your preferred pronouns? Just so it doesn't get weird later. We oh, honor that in this workplace. Of course. Of course. Almost as much as we honor Maud's forthcoming explanation of extrasolar origin. Um, okay. So So Maud prefers the pronouns they and them, which is, I suppose you could say, art imitating life in this case. So there you have three examples, one from real life, one from fiction, and one from the copy desk that illustrate what a breakout year it was for they. And I want to end by bringing to your attention, Bob, a kind of poetic full circleness that you may have missed. All right, bring it on. In the year 1200, speakers of English, Middle English, as it were, were searching for a way to make their pronoun system less ambiguous. And so they turned to they. Here we are now 800 years later, and we speakers of English are searching for a way to make our pronoun system more ambiguous. We want a way not to distinguish between he and she. And so once again, we are turning to they. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. I guess it's a beautiful thing. It certainly shows that language sometimes pushes the wider culture and sometimes reflects the wider culture. And that to the extent that the world embraces whole different ways of understanding sexuality and everything else under the sun, language is either going to be on the vanguard or lagging just barely behind. And that is a thing of beauty. And uh, just to sum up what you said, Mike, whereas once the word they helped us to disambiguate pronouns, now it's being called upon to reambiguate pronouns. Spin and wheel got to go around. Okay, if you want to write to us about your thoughts about they, please do at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley, and please subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. Thanks to everyone whose words I quoted, and to Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mikey, we done here? They are done. Later, Gator. What goes up? 
Yeah.